Okay, so just a little bit of education before we begin to practice. A bit of, uh, kind of like a, a briefing before we go to war. We have to have our conference before we go out and fight. to plan our strategies. Or if you don't like the, the simile of the war, the fight, you know, we can think of before we go on a journey, we have to plan our journey. What are we going to take with us? What, uh, what obstacles we can expect and what paths we have to take and so on. We have to talk about it, discuss it first. Not all paths are equal. If we take the wrong path, we end up in the wrong place. We can end up in a place that is worse off from where we started. Might end up even further away from the goal. Our path is pretty clear in the Buddha's teaching. We're quite clear, I think, that we have to dedicate ourselves to the practice of meditation and to try to be mindful as much as we can. But it, it does get a little bit more complicated than that because there are many different kinds of meditation and many different interpretations of the word mindfulness. Even just postures of meditation here, we have walking meditation, we have sitting meditation, we even have lying meditation and prostration meditation, many kinds of meditation, many forms of meditation. So it's important that we understand something about the background of these. Why do we do walking? Why do we do sitting? What kind of med meditations are there? When we talk about the difference between walking and sitting, well, they both have the same goal. The, the goal of both of them is for the arising of wisdom. This is important because important to understand because often our conception of meditation is much more for peace and for calm and tranquility. We expect it to be pleasurable because we've gotten so used to believing that something is only worthwhile if it brings us pleasure. So when walking we slip into the idea of and practice being good only when we feel calm and peaceful. I think of the sitting meditation is only good when we're calm and peaceful. And of course there's something to that. But the, the 
partiality is a, is a negative thing because it leads to clinging and, and aversion. When we can't control, when, when things don't go the way we'd like them to be, because we can't control them, we suffer. So much more important is the arising of wisdom, and this is what both walking and sitting should be. The difference between the two, the reason why we do walking and sitting, walking has some extra benefits that sitting doesn't have. Of course, you can't do walking meditation all day, but you shouldn't do sitting meditation all day either. Walking meditation helps you to walk long distances. This was important in the Buddha's time. It's even important for monks today. Sometimes we have to walk long distance. One time I went to Thailand. I flew, got on an airplane, went to Chiang Mai, got out of the airport, and just walked. I had to walk from one from the airport to the monastery. And you can see how much benefit you gain, even only having eaten one meal, two meals a day, because of the patience that comes from walking meditation. It can be of great use for, for us as renunciants, for someone who's giving up the world. Walking can be most useful. Sometimes when you rely on other people for transportation and so on, then you have to follow their uh, follow their intentions. You, know, you become uh, controlled by other people. When you walk, you don't have that. And so for a renunciant, it's quite important to be able to walk, to be able to to support your, your own, to support yourself to be self-reliant, self-sustaining. Walking is very important for us. So if we just do sitting meditation, we won't have any of this power in our bodies to be able to do the walking that's required. It gives you patience. Walking meditation is a monotonous activity. It helps us to do all sorts of monotonous activities gives us patience it helps digest our food it helps uh, helps the circulation and helps to keep the body free from sickness and more important uh, more to the point it builds concentration Walking meditation has some power to it because of the movement. It charges and it works out all the kinks in the body and gets your body uh, ready for the sitting meditation. So you find that the mind is more focused having done the walking meditation. Also walking meditation, because it's active, it's not as intense. And so if you start with walking meditation, your mind slowly, slowly settles in to the present moment and by the time you do sitting meditation you find that your mind is quite clear much more so than if you just did sitting
or whether it's walking or whether it's sitting, the Buddha talked about four kinds of meditation. We have them listed in the sutta. And so we have to understand what is meditation for and what are the, the benefits or the, the types of result we can get from meditation. The first benefit of meditation or, or goal, you might say, of a um, kind of meditation is happiness. Dita Dhamma Sukha Viharaya for the purpose of happiness in the here and now, happiness right here, right now. So this is what we expect from meditation, and it actually should come to us. Even after just a few days, meditators begin to feel at times more peaceful, more calm, more happy than they ever were before. Maybe five days into it, for a new meditator, they'll start to feel quite a, quite a great relief and quite a great confidence in the practice. They might see colors, lights, pictures, things that distract them and make them feel like, like they've attained some special experience. They might start to cry or their body start to shake or rock or uh, their body feels light and so on. Many good, positive things come. And so it's easy to to think that this is the this is the goal of the meditation. Indeed, some meditators never get past this. Sometimes when you teach, oftentimes when, when I've gone to give a talk somewhere where many people had practiced without a teacher, there would always be the question, what do, what, what I've been practicing and I come to the point where there's just peace and calm and I can't get beyond that. Or I come to the point where there's nothing, there's nothing to be aware of, nothing to acknowledge nothing to take as the object of meditation, it's just quiet. And, and so on, many variations of this, people seeing lights and colors and pictures and just following them and thinking, coming up with the question, what to do next? What's the way forward? Because they chase after these visions and nothing comes of it. And so this isn't the goal. This is one goal that you might say is not the goal of the practice. It's one thing that comes from the meditation that is not the goal of the meditation. A person can practice in this way and the Buddha said this is just the bark of the tree. It's a good result to the practice, but as people can see when they practice and indulge in this, it doesn't lead to complete freedom from suffering. It's not lasting, it's not permanent. It comes and it goes. So when we feel happy in meditation, we have to be clear in our minds, not that this is a bad thing or a, a wrong thing, but that it's not enough. It's not what we're looking for. So we take no, no, no regard. We take no notice of it, no special notice of it. 
It is what it is. When we feel happy, we say happy, happy. When we feel calm, we say calm, calm. When we feel quiet, we say quiet, quiet. Just reminding ourselves, telling ourselves, this is calm. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not the end, it's not permanent. And you're actually teaching yourself on a more fundamental level. The mind has many levels to it. Somebody brought this book and we were just looking at it today about this guy who went into a trance and apparently was able to say things that he himself could never say, could explain things to people that he himself could never explain. And there are many examples of this over the, over the history that scientists overlook for the most part. But it's interesting to think that there are levels that are working that, that we don't really understand. The workings of the brain, for example, and how it's affected by what we do. This is why when, when, even though we know something intellectually or when we repeat it to ourselves intellectually, it's not the same as actually knowing it because there's many, many levels of the mind, many different facets of the, of the mind. But what we see is that when we remind ourselves and when we fix our mind on the, on the phenomena. But somehow we learn on a different level. Our mind becomes clear about the object on a different level. And we can feel relief. We feel that the tension is, tension in our minds is being relieved as a result. When we really accept the meditation and put our heart into it and, and really genuinely remind ourselves, say, look, this is what it is. And we can see it all goes away and all of the attachment disappears. So this is the first stage of the practice, you might say, the first uh, landmark on our voyage. As we practice, we'll come to this. The second landmark is jnana dasana. That we'll come to understand and, and see many things. We'll come to see many things about ourselves, bad habits that we didn't notice, causes of bad habits, causes of suffering that we didn't notice. We'll come to understand many things about our lives. People who come to practice will often begin to work out all of the problems in their lives. Some people even begin to plan for the future. I'm going to go here, going to go there. Go back and start a monastery on an island in British Columbia. I'm going to go and teach my parents how to meditate. Many people have come up with this. I'm going to go back and make amends with this person or that person, things that we realize in the practice and often come up and make us think and make us plan. And so some people come to the point of thinking that, wow, this is, a, I've gotten what I came for. I've had people who come and at this point decide that they want to leave because they, they solved their problems. And it's funny, no, they solved their problems. If only it were that easy, right? That to feel jealous for these people, no? Envious of these people. 
solve their problems. Yeah, we thought it was harder than that. No, so it's easy to become uh, trick to trick yourself into thinking that you found a solution or to settle for something uh, something lesser. Even in meditation, it's possible just to gain magical powers. Part of what jnana dasana means is not just knowledge of ordinary things. It means super-knowledge. But all of this is a kind of super-knowledge. Even knowing that you've treated your parents poorly and that you, sh you should have gratitude towards the people who have helped you. Even learning gratitude is a very difficult thing. I've had people uh, scold me. I talk talked with one person and they just ridiculed the idea that you should be grateful. I mean, logically it makes no sense, right? If someone does something for you, well, that's, that's their, that's their issue, right? Why, why should you care? Well, they did it because they wanted to do it. This is the logic. Very dangerous thinking. But it, if you're not really practicing so many things that you can't see, how can you find an answer to that? How could you answer that if someone says, they did, they, my parents raised me because they wanted to raise me. They didn't have me because they wanted They They had uh, sexual intercourse and that was because they had desire. And then when they had me, they, they wanted to have me. When they wanted to raise me, they wanted to feed me, and they wanted to clothe me. I'm not so sure about that with all parents, actually. Many of them are... Uh, well, I suppose I wouldn't say. But if they, if, they could, if they could have you without having to do all that, I'm not sure that they would do it. But they certainly do love their children. And so they do do it out of love. So how do you respond to that? Logically, it's, it's easy to believe one thing or another. But in reality, it's quite different. A person who practices becomes keenly grateful to all those people who have helped Because they see how much... how difficult it is to help another person. How much sacrifice it takes to do something good for another person. To bite your tongue when you want to scold them or get angry at them when you want to leave them or abandon them and to, to discard that and to instead love them and support them and how difficult it is to help another person how difficult it is to be kind and loving you come to appreciate other people their good qualities if a person did something out of love for you this is something that attracts you as a meditator. We gravitate towards such people. We appreciate them. And we're grateful to be around them because we become quite uh, discerning or even sensitive towards people who don't have this kind of awareness, this kind of knowledge. So there's many special knowledges that you gain, many special awarenesses knowledge. Buddha even said this, knowing that you have parents, knowing who you're, knowing that, that there is such a thing as a father and a mother, 
it does have some meaning. It's a very powerful thing to be a father or a mother, to be a, a son or a daughter. The bond is quite strong. And because of the great things that they've done to you, it can become quite a burden to you if you don't think to repay them or think to be grateful, at least grateful towards them. It has very serious karmic consequences. There's no um, there's no logic there. It's, if anything, it's the forces of attraction and repulsion. For every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. So when great things have been done to us, if we're not grateful and we don't appreciate them and we don't strive to pay them back, well, we, we have really no choice. We will in the end pay them back one way or another, whether it's karmically or whether it's voluntarily. It's, it's the force of nature. Very strong, but you can only see it through meditation. This is an example. Many examples like that. Knowledge of impermanence, knowledge of suffering, knowledge of non-self. This is really what we're trying to gain in the practice. Coming to see so many things about our lives that we could change. But as well, coming to see special things. Some people see through, uh, are able to see through walls or, or see far, far away. Some people are able to fly through the air, read other people's minds, see heaven, see hell, remember past lives. Lots of strange things, special knowledge. So it's easy to get caught up in all of this, whether it be mundane knowledge or super knowledge. People even think, of course, that they're enlightened and very easy to become a famous guru if you have such powers. And come, people come to think that you're enlightened and so they come to you for prayers and chants and medicine and healing and all sorts of silly things that have nothing to do with meditation. Because, of course, your attainments don't really have anything to do with enlightenment. There are uh, Another landmark on the path when you attain this, when you start to understand things about reality, it's a sign that you've reached another stage in your practice. But it's not the goal, it's not where we're aiming for. So this is number two. Number three is sati sampajanyaya, and we will have mindfulness and clear awareness, or full awareness. So this is where we really start to get into the practice when we can really feel the foot moving. When we lift the foot, we know that the foot is lifting. When we move the foot, we know the moving. Placing, we know the foot is placing. And we can clearly distinguish the movement, the sensation. Our mind doesn't wander, and it doesn't judge either. Everything that arises, the mind sees it for what it is, simply for what it is. This is sampajanya. Sampajanya means full Awareness means you, when we talk about the word mindful, actually, sampajanya is a better trend, better Pali word for it because sam means full and pajanya means knowledge, so having to do with the mind. But sati really means to remember. They go very closely together, of course, that's why they're put here together. But sati is the quality of recollection, and in this case, 
recognizing that it's what it is or knowing it simply for what it is so sati is the delimiting quality that which delimits the object or delimits our awareness limits our awareness so that we don't uh, project or create projections based on the object so it's not me, it's not mine, it's not good, it's not bad it has, doesn't have this meaning or that meaning so we, we always think when things arise does this mean this, does this mean that, does that mean I think it means this, I think it comes from that and so on projections analysis, we don't need any of this so sati is the delimiting quality when we say to ourselves pain, pain, thinking, thinking we're trying to cultivate this delimiting quality the ability to recognize pati sati mataya we're trying to gain this um, simple recognition or this recollection not to forget and lose track of what the object really is because in the first moment we're aware of the object but right after that all sorts of thoughts come up so we try to cancel that by creating a clear thought thinking only it is what it is not this or that or the other thing not judging it that's what sati is but mindfulness would really be sampajanya sampajanya when your mind is full when you have full awareness of the object your mind doesn't waver from the object. It is fully uh, absorbed in the object for that moment. Sampajanya. Or it means knows everything about the object. It's another name for wisdom, actually. The commentaries explain it as it's wisdom, so seeing impermanent suffering and non-self. Which is quite apt, really, because Wisdom is inseparable from mindfulness. At the moment when you see the object for what it is, wisdom has to arise. It arises in the same moment. Just like when you see a tiger, you have to see its stripes as well. You can't see the tiger and not see the stripes. So the same when, when you see the object, you will say to yourself, rising, falling. At the same time as you say rising, and you know the rising, you also know impermanent suffering and non-self. That when you say to yourself, rising, you're saying to yourself, impermanent suffering and non-self. Really that's what it means, because you're seeing the beginning and the end of the object. And you see that it's impermanent, you see that it's un therefore unsatisfying. And this is what, how the meditation works the way it does. Because you will, you, sometimes in the beginning it seems quite miraculous how clear the mind becomes how sharp the mind becomes, how free the mind becomes from the hindrances of liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt, all, all things that hinder the mind, are obstacles in the mind. So you might find yourself falling into hindrances and then suddenly you catch yourself and start being mindful again, liking or disliking or doubting or whatever. Sometimes if people fall into doubting and want to leave and and then they come back and remember and they start focusing on the doubt, doubting, doubting. Suddenly the, the whole problem disappears. The problem changes from problem to meditation. Object of meditation. 
So this, I think, it's more difficult to think that this is the the goal because at this point you're really striving towards the goal. Once you reach this state where you're really mindful, then you can think the goal is in sight. We really have to be careful not to think how many hours am I doing, how many days have I been here. It's really useless. What's useful is how many moments are we actually mindful because this is what leads us closer and closer, inexorably closer to the goal. One moment at one, one moment at a time, moment by moment, adding them up. But it's also not the goal, it's only the path. The goal is number four, this is what we're really striving for, it's called asabhanangkayaya, for the purpose of asabhanangkayaya sangmatati goes for the purpose of the extinction of the taints or the stains of the mind, the defilements of the mind, the asava, kama asava, the taints or the our uh, attachments to lust or to sensuality. Bhava, so what desire to be, desire to become something, or our attachments to becoming, to being this or to being that, to things that exist or states of existence, partiality towards this state or that state, and avijasava. Avijasava means simple ignorance. Our being stuck in ignorance, so we're stuck to stuck to sensuality, stuck to becoming or being this or that, and we're stuck simply because of ignorance. So sometimes we don't have any intention at all. M beings in the world, often they don't have great lust or great uh, desires or ambitions, but we all have delusion, and it's, it's more than enough to keep us uh, floating around in samsara with no aim, like a boat without a rudder or a captain. A boat without a captain or a rudder. If you've ever been in a boat without a rudder, you know it can't go anywhere. Even though it has strong sails, it can't go anywhere. So you need this clarity of mind. So these three things are, are the another name for the defilement. This is really what we're aiming for. We're aiming to be free from all sensuality. We're aiming to be free from all ambition, and we're aiming to be free from all ignorance. These are the three asura. So sensuality, um, sensuality you have to be careful. It's easy to get very, very upset at yourself for sensuality is a dangerous one, especially for renunciants, lust and desire and so on. Most dangerous because we take it too seriously. The reason why people disrobe mostly is because of lust. Even though they give all sorts of excuses, it's funny to hear the excuses really. And then to see them a week later with, in some romantic engagement and know really what was the issue. But the way it happens is we take it too seriously. We don't see it for what it is. So we spend all our time trying to repress it, repress it, repress it. No, 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 bad, bad, bad. 
until finally it, it comes up and we say, I can't, I can't handle it anymore. I can't repress it. I can't stop it from coming up. So it's important to know from the start all about sensuality and to understand all, fully all about it. I spent a lot of time looking this one up in the suttas, trying to find what did the Buddha say on it. And you look through and I've heard, many people have asked this question as well. Looking through the suttas, trying to find an answer. Help me, help me. And you, you overlook it though, because you think there's some cure. Maybe if I do this, it'll disappear. Totally overlooking the core of the teaching. I think the best description of how to deal with sensuality or lust and so on, or even desire for anything, for food, for comfort and so on, is the Paticca Samuppada. Paticca Samuppada, we take it so, so much as a theoretical teaching. It's the one teaching in Theravada Buddhism that is most argued over, which is so silly to argue over such a teaching. It's not intellectual at all. It's reality. First there is the contact. You're aware of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Then there's the feeling. Then there is the liking of it. And then there is the clinging of it. And so on. So the clinging you can't help, but the even the liking you can help. You can't you can't get rid of the liking. Once it's arisen, it's arisen. But you can be mindful of all of these things. Seeing, seeing when you see something beautiful. Tasting, tasting. Feeling, feeling. Then you can be mindful of the happy, happy, or uh, calm, calm that comes from it. Peace, peaceful, or so on. When people smoke cigarettes, for example, they don't feel happy maybe, but they feel very calm. And then you can acknowledge the desire that comes. When you break it up into the different parts of the addiction, it becomes much easier to deal with, and you, you come to be, become comfortable with it. You say, this isn't so bad. In fact, the funny thing is, it's, it's wrapped up with a lot of pleasure, no? So it's, it's like, how can you tell yourself that this is wrong? How can you say, bad, bad, bad? which is what we do to try to deal with it, to try to be free from it. We say, bad, bad. But your mind is saying, but, but, that's pleasure in there. No? And when you deal with it objectively, instead of guilty, with guilty feelings, people who overeat, because they become very guilty about how overweight they are and so on. And so they tell them, bad, bad, bad. And then they go back and eat. Why? Because it's not bad, it's, it's pleasurable. A lot of pleasure comes from eating. The problem isn't the pleasure, the problem is the greed, because even when you're not hungry, you'll eat. Wanting the pleasure is the problem. When you see it objectively, in fact, you get much more pleasure, and you feel a great amount of pleasure coming up. Like you finally let it be, let it, let it come. If you're going to be happy about it, be happy about it. Happy. Stay when you stay with it. People think if you say happy, happy, how are you going to be happy? In fact, you're more happy because you don't have to strive for it. You don't have to cling to it. You're just happy, and then it goes away, and you're still happy. You're happy in another way. Your happy mind is free from any clinging. You're not thinking about how to get it back.
you're not depressed that it's gone. You're not angry at yourself for having clung to it. You didn't cling to it. This is sensual. This is kamasuva. Bhavasuva is the ambition. Wanting to become this, wanting to become that. Wanting to be a big teacher. Wanting to be a monk. All of these are also attachments, you know. Ambitions. There was a monk uh, in Thailand who was, uh, he wanted to become a bodhisattva. So he'd taken these vows as a bodhisattva, but then he also was told by his teacher to come and practice with us. And he had a very hard time because at the same time he wanted to become a Buddha and made a vow not to become enlightened as an arahant. And also he was trying to practice to become an arahant. So he went crazy. He cut his wrists, he, burnt, he lit himself on fire, eventually disrobed. But I'll never forget the time that we brought him to the mental hospital. Because he was, he was, I don't even remember his monk name, we didn't use him, but he was Prafred, the Bodhisattva. And you could see it in him, he had such... He was a really nice guy actually, very humble. He had trained really well in being a good Bodhisattva. Like he really had good qualities, he probably still does. Very good qualities of humility and kindness and, and wisdom as well. He was really smart. He really knew the Dhamma. One time our teacher, the, the teacher I was with asked us, asked him to talk about suffering. And I wondered why did he choose Prafred, because Prafred's a little crazy, you know. But suddenly he just explained suffering in a way I'd never heard it before. But he had this, he had this ambition and he had this image to him, you know, this feeling like he was something friend, the bodhisattva, pra-friend. Not that he had really ego about it, but he was very very much stuck in that. And so he was there, everything was mystical and magical and had some secret meaning to it. And then we got him to the mental hospital and they gave him medication. We came back the next morning, he was in pajamas and he was just Fred. He'd lost it all. Because the drugs, whatever they did, they they got rid of the ambition, and suddenly he was just an ordinary guy. He was he was normal. He was, yeah. And they took my robes away. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer here, but uh, you know what you're gonna do. All of the image disappeared. So you have to be careful as a monk. It's easy to get an image and the idea and to put on a put on a, or at least he, meaning is get ambitious or get the idea that you're going to be something. I'm going to be a good monk. The less you think of yourself as a monk, the more, the better you're going to be. The less you cling to the idea of who you are. A monk is more about what you're not, what you've given up. People ask me if I ever thought I'm going to disrobe. And the, the genuine, honest answer is always, I need a reason to disrobe. Because people, they look at it from the other way. They think, wow, how can you stay a monk? I'm thinking like, well, why are you a lay person? You look at it from the other side. Why are you wearing pants? You know, what, what reasons could you possibly have for getting married, for example? So, they have to have a reason to do that. The only reason to disrobe is, is because you have some clinging. You still want something. Being a monk is about what you give up. We don't take on robes. 
We've just decided that pants are, are pointless and pretentious and so on and, and wearing clothes should just be for what the Buddha be for. So we wear the, the simplest clothes possible, just a bed sheet really, simple cloth, ugly cloth, as ugly as possible so we can so we won't have attachment to it. I have. Uh, I had to give up my set, set of robes to take on this new color set. So if anybody wants my old robes, you're welcome to them. They're no longer mine. Anybody who's thinking about becoming a monk, you're welcome to them. Uh, they're now discarded cloth. But why I mention them is because they've got blood stains on them, and they probably smell like like, you know, pretty awful. Uh, I'm told they do anyway. I washed them with soap this time, actually, which is not uh, something special, so they'd be okay. But they can always be washed again. No, but this is how, in the Buddha's time, they would take the cloth off of dead people. And uh, most of us haven't ever had the luxury of seeing a bloated corpse lying on the side of the road. But you can imagine how gross, how horrible that would be. And here in Sri Lanka they actually have that. They allow you to uh, go in and take, take these cloths from dead people. Only monks, but they give a special permission for monks to go in and take the cloth off of people who have died in, in the morgue. Because otherwise they just burn the cloth, blood stained and so on. But we don't do this because we want to be, I am Noah the monk, or the, I am the monk, I am Yutta Dhammo, I have this special name. In the Buddha's time they didn't get special names. Most of them just used their ordinary names. So you have uh, one monk who is called, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was called Shorty basically, because he was very short. There was another one who was called uh, uh, Soma, no, no, so Sona, the guy with big ears, or the guy with big holes in his ears, or something like that. These are the names that they had. There was one guy who was called Scraggletooth, I think. I don't think he became a monk, but uh, I think his name was Scraggletooth. So they're just names. Things like this, you become very much attached to them. Bhava, bhava, bhava asava. It's nothing to do with sensuality, it's to do with ego, the idea of who you are. I'm a teacher, no? You get all these comments, like some good comments. I was saying this morning, someone said, instead of going to gossip, they listen to my talks. And I thought, people listen to my talks, you know? That sounds horrible, actually. It sounds like very egotistical. I don't know, I don't, it doesn't, it just seems happy. Or, the point is to be careful. No? It would be very easy to become egotistical about that. Phew, who are you? You're not me, I'm, I give good talks. So. Well, it's difficult because you get a lot of horrible comments as well. People say horrible things about you, good things, bad things, it's all mixed up in there. Being a teacher is useful in this way because your ego doesn't last very long. When you really start teaching, if you just pretend to be a teacher, that's easy, but if you really start teaching people, 
you lose your ego pretty quickly. Your students will do that to you. They run away from you, they call you bad names, they write you nasty letters. You're not a teacher, go practice. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard. But uh, if you just put on pretensions or so on, well, people will see it. Or you'll just surround yourself with bad people. It's very dangerous no, to have pretensions and to think of being a teacher. In the place, in Jam Tong, they always said, the best teacher is someone who doesn't want to be a teacher. A person who doesn't want to be a teacher is a good sign that they will make a good teacher. The person who wants to be a teacher, watch out. They're in trouble. That's just an example. Wanting to be a monk, wanting to be a teacher, wanting to be anything, wanting anything to come to you, wanting to live here, live there, and all these kind of things. The longest time in Thailand, it was very difficult because I was always thinking of my home. I was born on an island with beautiful trees and forests. And it becomes very idyllic when you're not there. No? We did go back there once, and it was quite idyllic, quite nice to be there, but we'd forgotten about the mosquitoes, which are, of course, much larger in Canada and more uh, um, painful really, they're not like the baby mosquitoes you get here. Ones in Canada are, are, chase the bears out of the forest. But you get the idea, you, you become attached to places, you become attached to uh, ideas, and you become attached to the idea of what, a, uh, what your life should be, wanting to become this, wanting to become that. This is Bhavasava. Avijasava is, as I said, just the ignorance, just the pure ignorance. Not even thoughts that come up. Not it, ignorance is not. It's like when you're not mindful. Most of the time we're just in ignorance. We're not mindful. We're not clearly aware of what's going on all the time. Something comes up and we just... Oh yes, that's, that's that. That's this. And as a result, this is where all the... all the suffering comes from. Because we... out of confusion, out of worry, out of doubt. We cause all sorts of friction and all sorts of chaos in our lives. Our lives can become quite chaotic even without clinging, even without ambition. Just through confusion. You know, not doing things in the right order, forgetting that you have an appointment with someone. You know, or this, you know, this kind of logic that says, I don't need to be grateful towards this person. So it can be a horrible thing. People can kill others out of delusion. No. What's wrong with killing? Killing is correct. I want to eat meat, I should kill. They want to, they, they, they die for me. No. And the people believe that the deer, deer will actually die, want to die for the hunter, or offer themselves up to the hunter. I tell you it's not true. Deer are, are quite amazing animals, and they when they hear something, they don't run away right away. Sometimes they come towards it. They get interested in it. They're such beautiful animals. And so the hunters think, oh, they're coming. They're offering themselves to me. And then, boom. After the deer's got the arrow in the side, it's not so friendly anymore. It's not so interested anymore. It's not so happy anymore. Quite a bit of suffering, really. 
hard to hard hard to believe. But this is people kind of this level of delusion, thinking that the deer wanted to get uh, wanted to bleed to death. This kind of thing. People who have arrogance and um, self righteousness and think that they deserve this or deserve that or bigotry and racism, prejudice, all of these things. This is all avidyasa, through ignorance. So much ignorance. Ignorance is the root, the root of it all. Because if we had nascence or knowledge, we would never give rise to any sort of clinging, any sort of ambition, and be able to see things as they are. This is the goal of the, of the meditation. This is the reason, the true reason why we're practicing. This is what we want to aim for. Just another food for thought session. Pep talk before we begin the real training, which we continue now with mindful prostration, walking and sitting. <laughs> 